As we begin today, I want to ask you to consider a few questions. What is most urgent to you? As you consider what's maybe on your plate this week or going on in your life, what feels most pressing, taking up all of your mental and emotional energy? What seems most real to you? What can't you avoid? It's in your face. Everything else seems to kind of be imaginary or hazy in the distance, but this feels very real. You can't deny its reality. Or what is it to you that you must have to make life worth living? If you were to lose this thing, it would hardly seem like going on. All those questions are getting at a more deep question. And that question is, what are you worshiping? What's captured your heart? What are you after? One of the foundations of false worship is when we take earthly things and make them ultimate things. We take things that here and now and we treat those things as if that's all that there is. That the things of God, the, the things to come in heaven or hell, those things don't matter. We can push those off to another day. Our minds and our hearts are only filled with, with what's here and now, with, with what's urgent. That feels absolute, primary. All other spiritual matters are secondary. We find that in our false worship, that's always operating behind the scenes, that sense that the, the present, the tangible, the visible, those things really matter, and all these other things don't really matter. This morning in our passage, Daniel chapter 5, we see this man named Belshazzar, Belshazzar who was obsessed with his immediate and urgent concerns. And even a visitation from God couldn't move him away from his obsessions. As we think about this passage and where it fits in the Bible's history, it's written here in this prophecy or this writing of Daniel that probably is not really completed until the end of the exile. So this would have been a book that would have sustained Israelites in the period between returning to Jerusalem and the coming of Christ. So it's a book for exiles who've returned and are trying to reconstitute what they had, rebuild the temple and, and create Jerusalem out of the rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had wrought. And so it's not hard to imagine that these Israelites back in Jerusalem had urgent and pressing concerns. How will we rebuild? And once we rebuild, how will we maintain our identity as as Jews under God's authority in the face of other evil empires like Greece and Rome that are coming along. It's not hard to imagine how they would have perhaps sympathized with Belshazzar's obsessions to gain power and to keep power. That the maintaining of their own sovereignty would have seemed more important than any other concern. They may have been obsessed with being in power or preventing others from ruling over them. And it's not hard to imagine how we, living as 
strangers and exiles in a fallen world might become obsessed with similar things. What will happen if evil rulers take over and, and don't allow us to live the lives we want to live? And that's just one example of the urgent taking over, but there's many that we can imagine. In Daniel chapter 5, as I've already mentioned, we meet this man named Belshazzar, who's a new ruler in Babylon. Something like 30 years has probably elapsed between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, who we were reading about in the first four chapters, has been dead a long time by now. There's also been a few Babylonian kings between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And Belshazzar himself is not a king in his own right. He was appointed co-regent of the city of Babylon by his father, a king named Nabonidus. Nabonidus took a self-imposed 10-year exile from Babylon, and he left Belshazzar in charge. And then even after Nabonidus came back, Belshazzar would take charge any time that Nabonidus went to fight, which he was having to do, in this case, to go out on the battlefield and fight the Persians. So we have this new regime in Babylon, and a new regime that is under some stress, because the Persians are breathing down their necks. But just like Nebuchadnezzar before him, as I mentioned, Belshazzar is obsessed with power and glory. He wants to make sure his kingdom endures. And so he has to establish his hold on power, or at least give the impression to the Babylonian nobility that he and his dad have power. But we might wonder, what well, does this Belshazzar know the stories of Daniel chapter 1 through 4? And Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that God was in charge, that God put rulers on the throne and took them off, that God raised up the lowly and gave them rulership over the kingdoms of men. Has Belshazzar learned that lesson? And if he knows that lesson, does he care about that lesson? We're going to see some of the answers to those questions come up in this passage. And very quickly we'll see that in Belshazzar's pursuit of power, he has no regard for the things of God, and God takes note. So very early on, we see it's clear that Belshazzar has a big problem with God, and he's desperate for a solution. I think it's fair to say his desperation even outstrips some of the desperation that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so this passage turns on the drama. Belshazzar has a problem. Can Daniel solve it? like he solved problems for Nebuchadnezzar. That's how we're going to organize our time. We're going to look at Belshazzar's problem. And while we look at Belshazzar's problem, we should also consider our own sin problem. And then we'll ask, can Daniel solve it? What is the solution to our sin problem? So to look at Belshazzar's problem, let's read Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 to begin. This is on page 742 in the Bibles Provided. Listen to God's word from Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. 
They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now for those of us who have been following along with this series in Daniel, you'll probably notice some familiar arcs in this story. We have the alarmed king who's seen a vision. We have the Babylonian wise men who can't figure out what this means. And then there's Daniel waiting in the wings with the solution to the problem. Even in the, in the ending that we'll see, we see the story echoes previous endings where after Daniel does his thing, he's elevated to a place of prominence in Babylon. So these similarities may lead us to think that this chapter 5 is just rehearsing the same points that have already been reinforced, that God is sovereign over human kingdoms and that human kingdoms come and go, but God's will, God's kingdom endures forever. That's certainly part of the point of this chapter, but it's not all. And we can see what else is here by paying attention to the differences between what's going on here and what happened in the previous chapters. One thing we see is just the difference that Belshazzar's here and not Nebuchadnezzar. It's a pretty obvious one, uh, but it's important because God told Nebuchadnezzar that he would die, and now he's dead. This has come to pass. And so Nebuchadnezzar's successors can look back with 2020 hindsight and know that at least part of God's message to Nebuchadnezzar came true. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the eternal king who would rule forever. God is still on his throne. Daniel's still here with them interpreting visions. But Nebuchadnezzar has been in the grave for a long time. The point is not just that God rules, but the point is that even here, Belshazzar has no excuse for ignoring this lesson. He knows that all of the people around him and himself, him himself are, are finite, and that they will not last forever. He should know that he rules at God's pleasure. One way to get to this basic idea is just to remember the very first couple of verses of the book of Daniel, where we are told that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. That these things came to Babylon's possession because God gave them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
even if Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that in Daniel chapter 1, by Daniel chapter 4, it's become really clear to him that God is the one who gives glory and takes it away. And so when it comes time to throw a great feast for all of his lords and to, and to uh, make sure that they know his power, it was, this could be a time for Belshazzar to, to lean in to the lesson of his father, Nebuchadnezzar. But we see that Belshazzar does the exact opposite. In order to show off his power, he has these temple artifacts brought in. He drinks wine from God's holy things and does so praising the false gods of Babylon, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Scholars speculate again that perhaps Belshazzar is doing this in a response to these threats from Persia. They're making war on Babylon, and so while his dad Nabonidus is out fighting in the field, Belshazzar needs to put on this show of, of power. Everything is good here. Everything is glorious. Let's remember the glory days back when we ruled over, when we defeated Jerusalem. So let's bring in the spoil. Let's drink from these vessels. So Belshazzar is using God's holy objects as props in the celebration of his household's glory. He puts God's holy things to use in pagan worship. We saw some pride from Nebuchadnezzar, but we never have quite seen this from him. And it's notable that immediately, it says, when Belshazzar does this, immediately is when the hand appears, writing on the walls of his palace. And Belshazzar is absolutely terrified. Did you notice all the descriptions of his terror? His color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. Verse 7 says he cried out loudly. He's screaming like a frightened child for help. He's completely undone when he sees this hand. Now, this may seem superficially like what Nebuchadnezzar experienced, but it's, it's way more than an alarming dream. For one thing, this, this is happening in public, and maybe the hand was a vision, but the writing remains, right? This finger is scratching in the plaster in front of the lampstand. So Belshazzar is experiencing something new here. His actions go beyond pride to something like high-handed blasphemy against the living God. And the visitation he receives is greater as well, more intense, more lasting. So this thing is left on the wall such that Belshazzar doesn't have to tell anyone what's happened. He can point Say, look at those scratchings on the wall. I just saw a hand make those that they weren't there before. And everyone can look and try to read them. Daniel can be brought in to see them. So we see that Belshazzar's public blasphemy receives a public enduring manifestation of God's power. In verse 10 through 12, we're told that the queen hears the commotion and she enters the scene. The queen is probably here, the, the queen mother, so Belshazzar's mother, who wasn't invited to this banquet, but she hears the commotion. She hears his alarm. She hears the perplexity being emitted from the lords. She comes in 
And she says she's got a solution to the problem. There's no need for this alarm. There's no need for Belshazzar to look sick. She knows somebody who can solve the problem. She's got Daniel in mind. That last phrase about Daniel being a problem solver is interesting because in a second, Belshazzar will repeat it. It's interesting to consider what problem did they want Daniel to solve? This gets to a key problem that we all have as human beings when we think about God. This is really maybe not not when we think about God himself, but when we invent gods or we think of God in our own image. Because we tend to invent gods that can be manipulated and appeased. A little sacrifice here, a vow there, and we can extract something we want from our gods. Remember, Belshazzar's problem is not just that he's got this unintelligible writing on the wall. His, His problem is his blasphemy and his idolatry. Does Belshazzar think that Daniel has some way to buy off the Most High God? Perhaps you remember something of the fiery furnace, or even of Nebuchadnezzar's rescue from madness. And he thinks, well, these these Jewish guys, they they know the secret incantation required to get the Most High God to back off. The queen proposes Daniel as the solution to Belshazzar's problems, and so Belshazzar is out of better options, and he calls in Daniel. But what can Daniel really do for Belshazzar? Sometimes I've noticed when I tell someone who's maybe not a Christian or they have maybe a, a very light relationship with Christianity, I tell them that I'm a pastor, and they'll tell me, they'll ask me to pray for them. And they say it in such a way as if they believe that my prayers will have some kind of greater efficacy, that because I'm a pastor, I have some more power over God even to get good things for them. As if God maybe gives priority to the pastor's prayers and everybody else's prayers just go to voicemail and get lost in the queue. Those ideas are more common than we might think. Belshazzar and the queen look at Daniel as a kind of spiritual fixer. Daniel knows the right people to call, the right strings to pull. But what sense does that make when we think of the greatness of Belshazzar's problem? His problem of blasphemy. His problem of idolatry against the Most High God. What could Daniel do for him? Ask yourself, was Belshazzar in any way repentant here? Or just looking for some way out from under the hand of God? What about you? Are you tempted to think of God and religion in the way Belshazzar did? Do you imagine that if you get on God's bad side then you just need to take a few small steps to get back on the good side. Perhaps you'll go to church for a while, you'll make sure you put a few dollars in the offering box, and then you'll be back on track. God will then overlook whatever wrong steps you've taken. If you think that way, you're willing to admit you've got a problem, but you imagine that the problem is manageable. Maybe if your problem seems a bit worse, that's when you enlist the help of that spiritual friend or that pastor, the way Belshazzar reaches out to Daniel. You may not be able to patch things up, but this other person, they're more godly. They can step in for you and do the job. I don't want to discourage anyone from coming to church or from asking a godly friend for help. Those are really good things to do. 
But I do want to make sure that we don't think that those good things done with the wrong motives will have any effect on God. Our good works can't erase the bad things we've done. They can't erase our sins. And we should see that God is not a force that we manipulate. You can't buy off God. You can't appease God. Our sin problem is not one that we can solve. Even godly friends can't solve it for us. We tried to imagine what Belshazzar was hoping Daniel could do, so now let's look at what Daniel does. Will Daniel do what Belshazzar was hoping? Will Daniel solve his problem? Let's look at verses 13 through 23. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. For I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Daniel takes a very confrontational approach to Belshazzar. He begins rejecting Belshazzar's offer of wealth and power, he never started any of his speeches to Nebuchadnezzar in this way. And he's not quick to provide the interpretation. Right? I haven't gotten to the interpretation of the words yet. Right? We've already hinted here about, or we have a hint here in these words about what kind of help and solution Daniel can provide. After rejecting Belshazzar's gifts, he, he provides this history lesson. He recounts Nebuchadnezzar's greatness 
And he does so in really exalted terms. He, he talks about Nebuchadnezzar as having kind of godlike powers himself, that whom he killed he would, and whom he would keep alive he would, and whom he would raise up he would, and whom he would he humbled. At the height of his power, Nebuchadnezzar had a godlike rule. But Daniel is very clear that Nebuchadnezzar was not God. That Nebuchadnezzar was given this power and glory as a gift from God. It was God's doing. So Belshazzar is meant to to know that this greatness that his his ancestor or his predecessor enjoyed, he couldn't take any credit for. It wasn't a greatness that belonged to Nebuchadnezzar in the house of Babylon. It It only belonged to them as a gift from God. And we see that when God gives, he also takes away. The same glory was taken from Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar was brought low, as low as one of the beasts of the field. And so as Daniel tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's life to Belshazzar, the story begins and ends with God. God gave him glory and greatness. God raised him up from his humiliation. And the point is that Nebuchadnezzar came to know that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of men and sets over whom he will. The point of this history lesson, though, is, is not really to instruct Belshazzar or to tell him something new. Daniel says to him in verse 20, 20, 22, you knew all this. He says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. All this you knew. Daniel's point is to tell Belshazzar that the terror he's experiencing, the alarm in his soul, is well earned. Belshazzar is without excuse. He knew the truth about the Most High God. He knew where authority came from. He'd heard these stories. He knew how God had brought down Nebuchadnezzar and raised him back up. He knew all of this, but rebelled anyway. You see, Daniel is not here to solve any of Belshazzar's problems. He's here to read out the evidence against him. He's here to hold up Belshazzar's record and say, you are guilty of blasphemy and rebellion against the Most High God. And so Daniel says, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. He recounts all the vessels of silver and gold. He recounts his idolatry. And he makes sure that Belshazzar knows the gods that he praised are no gods at all. They cannot see or hear or know Instead, the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Belshazzar says, you know who God is, and yet you've ignored him, rebelled against him, and blasphemed him. Belshazzar knew, but his knowledge did not humble his pride. It didn't inform his worship. It didn't keep him from desecrating the Lord's holy vessels in service of his own glory. So we see his problem, and we also see that Daniel did not come to solve the problem. He came to prophetically tell Belshazzar what he was guilty of. In a way, he came to tell Belshazzar, your problem is much worse than you thought. As Glenn read for us earlier, the Apostle Paul picks up these same themes in Romans chapter 1. But of course, the Apostle Paul was not writing about Belshazzar, He wasn't writing about the Roman emperor or Caesar. 
He was writing about all human beings. He says it's not just Belshazzar who ignores the truth about God that he knows. It's all people, the whole human race. All men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth about God. Paul specifically says that we can know God's eternal power and divine nature from what we can see about God in creation. Think about those two things, eternal power and divine nature. Those are pretty similar to the exact same things that Belshazzar rejected, that God is God, that God is the one who gave him power, that God is the creator and maker and sustainer. That's what Belshazzar rejected. That's what all people in our sin have rejected. We've rejected God and his status as creator, and we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've worshipped images of gold and silver, created things instead of the creator. Belshazzar's big problem is all of our big problem. We are idol worshippers. If you listen to the sermons here, you hear us say that a lot, and you always hear us qualify. We're not saying you have these little statues you know, carved in your, in your shrine in your living room. At least I haven't seen any of your living rooms to, to suggest that. But what we're saying is that we're doing what the Apostle Paul describes. We're exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. We're doing those things I talked about at the beginning. Allowing the things of this world to grow so great in our hearts and minds and affections that the things of God become an afterthought. We have our hearts set on things like our own security and power and pleasure. We have ignored the idea that God made us and rules over us. Like Belshazzar, we have not honored God, the one in whose hand is our breath. Have you come to see the nature of your problem? When Belshazzar caught a glimpse of his, he, he felt like his, his body was giving way underneath him. And then Daniel came and laid it out for him. Have we understood that truth ourselves? Do we understand how big our problem is? Like Belshazzar, we have rebelled and indulged in idolatry. We understand the seriousness of our sin against a holy and good God. We noted that Belshazzar was without excuse because of how much God had revealed to him through the experiences of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, how much has God revealed to you? Kids, if you've grown up in a church like this one or in a Christian home, how much have your parents taught you about God's word? Have they told you the good news that God made you? And even though you sinned against him, God sent his son to die for your sins. What have you done with the news, the good news you've heard about God? That's a question we'll all have to answer before God someday. Do you think you have some excuse for why you should have rejected that truth? If you had some excuse before you came in this morning, what about now? We can imagine Belshazzar saying, look, I wasn't paying attention when those old men were telling me those old stories about Nebuchadnezzar. You can't really have expected me to have heard those things and for that to change the way I rule. But now he's had this visit with Daniel. 
He's had this vision of the hand and the writing on the wall. What excuse can he make now? Perhaps you're here today to have your own encounter with Daniel and the Apostle Paul and with God himself. God has read out the evidence against you. What's your excuse for refusing to repent? Here in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel not only reads out the evidence, but he also declares God's sentence against Belshazzar. That's what the handwriting on the wall is about. And so in verses, verse 24 through 28, we find the interpretation. The writing on the wall is a play on words having to do with weights and measures. And we'll see how that comes into the interpretation. Let's read chapter 5, verse 24 through 28. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel begins by clarifying this hand was sent by God. The, the God in whose hand is Belshazzar's breath also sent this hand to write on Belshazzar's, Belshazzar's wall. Daniel's interpretation forms a kind of sandwich. So on the outside of the sandwich are two different ways of saying that the kingdom of Babylon has come to an end. In the middle of the sandwich is the reason for the ending. And the reason is directly connected to Belshazzar. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Those are haunting words to read. The Lord's verdict on Belshazzar is he's been weighed in the balance and he did not measure up. Now there are many ironies here. In the moment that Belshazzar was trying his hardest to assert his power and glory, this verdict comes in. This is your power and glory is vanishing. When Belshazzar would have others esteem him as being the most weighty and glorious, God says, you're a hollow shell, a husk of a king. And the very thing that Belshazzar wanted to secure, his family's grip on power to keep the Medes and Persians out, God says, You've already lost to the Medes and Persians. It's a haunting verdict. I wonder how this verdict strikes you. If you were to hear, you've been measured and found wanting. Aren't these words kind of like our worst nightmare? But I wonder if they're our worst nightmare for the wrong reasons. One of the great idols we have in our culture is the idol of achievement. That we should be the best. And we should beat out everybody else. Even if we're not exactly sure what the game is, we just want to be the best at it. <laughs> we're constantly measuring ourselves against others or, or what we think others are like. And even though we live in this way, this kind of idea of competition, it's terrifying to think that there really is some leaderboard out there. Well, it's only terrifying if we're not on top of the leaderboard, right? I mean, could you bear that kind of news to see your ranking in the People Olympics? Because we worship the idol of achievement, the idea that we might not measure up is devastating, that we might be weighed in the balances found wanting. 
But then this gets us back to our real problem. The problem that we're obsessed with measuring up in this life, but we don't care how God measures us. We measure ourselves by some imaginary standards that we come up, or again, how we think the other folks are doing it. Instead of thinking, what does God desire of me? Isn't this true for Belshazzar? Why had he become a, a husk, a hollowed-out husk of a king? Well, it's because of his idolatry and rebellion. He was weighed in the balance and found wanting. This is what idolatry does to us all. We're made to know and worship God, but idolatry blinds us to God's beauty. It makes us dumb to the knowledge of God. Idolatry, by God's grace, can't erase the image of God in us, but it distorts it. We become like what we worship. You see that these idols couldn't know. Neither could Belshazzar's wise men know, right? They were ignorant. We do not see or hear or know the living God, and in our quest for permanence and glory, we become like a vapor. We go up in smoke. Now, we get no insight into Belshazzar's thoughts when he hears these words from Daniel. He doesn't argue with Daniel. He clearly believes that Daniel has gotten the interpretation right. Somehow this interpretation was self-validating because the next thing we hear is verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck and proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. This is a really great prize that Daniel won, right? It's like getting that golden ticket and then finding out the store is closed. But note there's no mention of repentance for Belshazzar. Unlike what we've seen from Nebuchadnezzar when he comes to the end of chapters like this, Belshazzar doesn't praise God for revealing the meaning of the handwriting. He doesn't acknowledge God's sovereignty or God's wisdom. The next thing we hear is that he's killed. That's what verse 30 and 31 say. That, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This man called Darius the Mede is very likely Cyrus the Great, the king of the ascendant Persian Empire who would send Jews back to Babylon in a few years. We'll talk more about him next week. But for now, notice the tragic end of Belshazzar. We've been saying throughout the second half of this message that Daniel could not solve Belshazzar's problem. In one sense, he couldn't solve it because he couldn't undo the verdict that was already written on the wall. Right? The kingdom was already taken from Belshazzar. The one with that hand was written on the wall. So he couldn't save the kingdom or Babylon. He couldn't preserve Belshazzar's legacy. And he certainly couldn't erase Belshazzar's rebellion and blasphemy. But we can read between the lines and we can see Belshazzar's true response to Daniel's message. Belshazzar's true response is to say that repentance is not worth it if it won't save his kingdom. If repentance didn't get him the things he wanted, then repentance was worthless. For Belshazzar, all that mattered was the here and now. Are we tempted to think the same way? What is it that you can't live without? This is the fundamental problem with our idolatries. We elevate these good things to become ultimate things. 
We may pay lip service to God's truth and to heaven and hell, but they're far down the list of our concerns. If that's our attitude, then Daniel would say, wake up. If we're thinking that way, we're like the rich fool from Jesus' parable in Luke 12. You remember that parable? He told this parable to a man who was very concerned about getting his fair share of his inheritance. And in the parable, a rich man has a huge harvest and he immediately starts making plans for how to build larger barns to store all of his wealth. And in the parable, the fool says to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But then God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Friends, heed the warning of Belshazzar. Heed the warning of the rich fool. Jesus is going to say, Our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Our lives do not consist in what we have. Your life does not consist in how much you achieve or where you rank on the People Olympics or the amount of luxuries that you can surround yourself with. When you die, whose will those things be? They won't last. Instead of living for earthly glory, Daniel would have us turn to the God over life and death. If you were kind of trying to summarize Daniel's gospel in a nutshell, it's this. God is the giver of life and salvation. No one, not even the richest, most glorious king on earth, has life in and of himself. Even great Nebuchadnezzar, who killed whom he would and raised up whom he would, even him, he was given life by God. But God has life in himself. God is the creator and the eternal ruler of all creation. And we know that God gives life to sinners through the sending of his Son, the Son of God. Despite all of our blasphemy and idolatry, the Son of God willingly came to save us. The Son of God became a man, born of a woman, and he was named Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. And the man Jesus committed no blasphemy. He never had an idolatrous thought in his heart. He did not come to seek his own glory, but instead he always perfectly worshipped God. But he willingly suffered the cursed death, the death that one who had defiled the holy things of God should have died. That's what Jesus did. He suffered hell so that sinners could be forgiven. He was killed like Belshazzar, for our sin. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He does for us what, Belsh- what Daniel could not do for Belshazzar. Jesus erases our blasphemy and idolatry by taking it on himself. He takes away our sin. He nails it to his cross. So if we've had a a handwriting on the wall moment, a moment when you catch a glimpse of your sinfulness and you get that pit in your stomach and your knees go weak, look to Jesus. Take God's side against your sin. Repent of your sin 
and put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save you. Your godly friends can't save you. I and your pastors can't save you. Another achievement can't save you. Only Jesus can save sinners. Only he can provide the kind of life that matters now and for all eternity. Only Jesus can reconcile us to God. When we are found in Christ, we are no longer weighed in the balance of found and found wanting. By faith in Christ, we are God's beloved children. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, you have told us in your word that when we worship idols, we become like them. We become blind and deaf and ignorant to your goodness and our own sin. And so we pray for eyes to see. We ask you to remove the the scales that have clouded our hearts. Give us a clear vision of our sin. Give us a clear vision of the emptiness of the things on earth that we're tempted to live for. Helps us to see the things that won't last and your things that will last. And grant us faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.